This week on the Science of Politics, do parties favor diverse candidates or white males? For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. Despite a broad field of qualified women and minority candidates, two white men are now leading the Democratic presidential field. Even after supporting women for Congress, Democrats may be shying away this time. Do both or either parties want diverse nominees? And are memories of Hillary Clinton's loss deterring Democrats' support for women in 2020? Today, I talked to Neil Vasovinich of Durham University about his just-accepted American Journal of Political Science article with Hans Hassel, The Party's Primary Preferences. They find that neither party discriminates against women or minority candidates in congressional races, with Democratic Party donors actually favoring white women. But why doesn't that apply to this year's presidential race? I also talked to Seth Maskett of the University of Denver about his working paper with Paviel Haynes, You had better mention all of them. They find that when told Hillary Clinton lost due to a focus on identity politics, white women are more likely to support men running on an economics message than women running on discrimination. Vasovinich and Hassel find that neither party discriminates against women and minority candidates in their primaries. We examine the relationship between the two major national parties and how they, you know, whether they support or are more likely to support minority and women candidates in the primaries for U.S. Congress. And what we find is that the parties are actually mostly agnostic when it comes to promoting racial minorities. But it's the Democrats are significantly more likely to support white women, but that support does not extend to women of color. Uh, Republicans aren't any more significantly or yeah. likely to support w- uh, women than than, than men, male candidates. So we basically a lot of the a lot of the, the the paper is that we don't find that parties discriminate against these underrepresented groups. The conventional wisdom that Democrats are the party of diversity doesn't really hold up. The popular current conventional wisdom is the Democratic Party is really the party of minorities and, and women, especially in this the, the last election. And the Republican Party is generally the party of older white men. And this has actually been, you know, a, a bigger issue recently because the the gender gap in voting and also in in representation has really been dramatic in the last few cycles. There's like I, I think I saw recently that Republicans, like Democrats added a whole, in 2018, Democrats added a whole number, a whole slew of uh, women representatives into their ranks. And that election Republican and the Republicans, I think they either lost or they didn't, they didn't gain any, any women represent, uh, representatives at all. I think it was partly a function of them just sort of losing in general, but there is this sort of perception that, that if you're a woman and you're, or you're a minority, the Democratic Party is the way to go. And, but, but we investigate specifically whether the parties are in their actions actually, you know, favoring certain types of candidates over others. And what we sort of surpri- find it, at least with our current data, is that really parties are largely agnostic. And so this sort of challenges the conventional wisdom a bit. Parties, you know, the Republican Party isn't any more hostile to minority women candidates when compared to white candidates. And the Democratic Party, they're favorable to white women, but otherwise they're pretty agnostic to minority candidates and women of color. And so the parties themselves sort of take a different, at least when it comes to the funding apparatus that they that, that the parties engage with, they take a different tack than the conventional wisdom. But recent history might matter. Maskett and Paviel find that the framing of prior losses affects the next election. This time, it might be ideas about Clinton and identity politics. The real focus of the paper is looking at 
how post-election narratives work and change the political environment. That is, every you know every election and certainly every presidential election um, is followed by some attempt to define what that election meant, um, what the lesson of that election was, particularly for the the losing candidate or the losing party. They want to know what what was the lesson of it. And the real takeaway from this paper is just having that discussion. You know, just making arguments about why Hillary Clinton lost in 2016 can change the political environment for the next election. Um, It affects how people think about the next election, about who could potentially win and who couldn't, um, about what the right candidates are to nominate. In this case, uh, for, for our particular analysis, we found that this identity politics argument that was floated around a lot in, in the wake of 2016, this was the argument that Hillary Clinton lost because her campaign and Democrats in general focused too much on reaching out to women, to African-Americans, to Latinos, the LGBT community, and so forth, and not enough to just sort of communicating a a general message for all Americans. And as a result of that, uh, white men, white working class men generally, felt alienated. It it didn't reach out to them. And uh, as a result, they turned to uh, the Republican Party that was speaking to them. Regardless of whether, you know, regardless of any truth in this argument, we found that just making that argument had an effect on voters. And it affects, among white Democrats, it affects uh, who they like the next time around. And in particular, um, it seemed to affect women, white female Democrats. It made them, you know, generally they were leaning toward nominating a woman next time around, uh, nominating a, a relatively progressive candidate who cares about addressing racism and inequality. And it made them, hearing this argument made them more likely to abandon those goals, Uh, a little more willing to just say, okay, I'll nominate a man. Okay, I'll nominate someone who just has sort of a general economic message in mind. Some history suggests that prior narratives like these mattered for the presidential nominees. The battle over the narrative is uh, an important part of what a party argues about that parties will use, uh, you know, different factions within a party will make claims about why they lost so they can try and win future contests. So, for example, in the 1980s, there were, you know, lots of debates among Democrats about why they continue, why they lost three presidential elections in a row. And, you know, for some, it was evidence that, oh, we've gone too far in uh, the, the racially inclusive direction and we need to move more toward the white Southern wing of our party. And in some ways, that's how you end up with Bill Clinton as the nominee in 1992. So we were trying to, there's not a ton of literature in that area. And we were just trying to uh, develop that a bit more. For Maskett, this research came out of a larger project on how activists are seeing the election. I'm in the middle of a book project right now that is more generally the the Democratic Party 2016 to 2020. I'm interested in capturing a, a party in the act of making a decision that is, you know, figuring out why it lost the last election, coming to a decision about who it wants for the next time around. So this is obviously a big component of this. Part of what I'm doing is talking to um, activists in some early primary states and in Iowa and New Hampshire and South Carolina and Nevada and getting a sense of, you know, talking to them from early 2017 and getting a sense of why they thought uh, the Democrats lost in the 2016 presidential race, and then repeatedly talking to them over time and getting a sense of how they're evaluating different candidates and who they like and who they don't like. So that's that part is still ongoing. And I'm looking at a couple of uh, different ways of examining factionalism within the party, 
But also part of it, I was just, you know, curious about looking at election narratives themselves and how they're built and what kind of effect they have on activists and voters. Vasavanich started his research by thinking about the representation gap, connecting his interests with Hassel's data on party network support. My research coming out of my PhD program was was looking at minority candidates, and that's sort of what my dissertation was about. That's sort of what my research agenda was largely about, and still continues to be. I'm still working on that kind of research, but but I, but as I sort of studied candidates more, I actually grew more interested in representation, and sort of and and I become more interested in this because I I think that it's clear that this is that representation, specifically descriptive representation, and what I mean by descriptive representation is sort of like having representatives who look like you or have qualities that are that are like you. So, you know, if you're having a, a black representative, if you're if you're a black voter, a woman representative, if you're a woman voter, that sort of thing, that these are that this is ex- these are extremely important for a lot of minority groups. And and one thing about America is that it has a very large representation gap. And what, what I mean by representation gap is sort of a gap between my, racial minorities and women are significantly underrepresented in Congress and in our political institutions compared to their proportions in the population, their proportions in the electorate. And so, and I think that uh, closing this gap and investigating why this gap exists and closing it is 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 a big part of incorporating different groups into the political process, providing quality representation. It's what, you know, it's what a lot of groups care about. And so, but I, but usually prior research is really focused on the candidate level dynamics about this. So like, you know, well, so are voters discriminating against minority candidates? Are the minority candidates, you know, like, is there a sort of a pipeline issue, which is sort of like, are there enough candidates even out there running? Those are sort of like, that's been sort of the focus on this representation gap. And, and I was aware of Han, Hans's work on party, on like the roles parties, parties play in sort of providing resources to certain to certain candidates. And so we, you know, we're friends and we, we went to graduate school together, actually, and we just started talking and we were like, yeah, you know, this is interesting. What is the role that parties play in uh, bridging this gap? And then so that got us, got us thinking that we could combine kind of my interest in in represent in kind of like minority representation, and Hans did all this work on party campaign finance networks and, par- and party influence in primaries, and we sort of merged those two things together for this paper. Vasalvinich and Hassel used shared donors with the party congressional committees to measure party support and find that it matters a lot to who wins primaries. So when we talk about party support, uh, what we really mean is that the the party as an entity has certain preferences, and these preferences are expressed through with support through access to resources. And obviously in American politics, money is a huge factor in raising successful campaign. So that's a big part of it. But this also means access to adequate candidate training, staffing opportunities, and other kind of resources that make for a successful candidacy. And so primarily the way we measure party support is through shared donors between the candidate and the national campaign arms of both parties. So what that means is that the parties sort of coordinating resources to be sent to certain campaigns and certain candidates. And, and this is sort of seen as sort of like a, that they're favorable to certain candidates over others. And, and but really, the, 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 the measure is meant to be kind of like a proxy variable for kind of overall party support, that the parties sort of express their preferences this way. And so I think that like, in, in Hans's work, he finds, you know, he wrote an entire book on this, and he wrote a number of different papers, and he finds that this support is a significant part of 
the winning formula for successful candidates. So it not only provides resources, but it also has the effect of kind of clearing the field for favorite candidates and signaling to other competitors who the party supports. And in, and in some instances, signaling to like the voters themselves that you know, this, is the, this is the candidate that pay, the, the party favors. And so the parties themselves kind of play a major role, actually play a major role in promoting diversity. And what they do at this sort of candidate selection stage or this sort of primary stage matters a lot for the diversity of the candidates who make it to the make it to the general election and who have a chance to be elected. The parties are interested in diversity, but may perceive a trade-off with electability. There is a value in diversity for the national parties. I mean, you can sort of see this in the sort of way that the national parties really structured their their conventions, right? Like, I mean, I think that bo- both parties really wanted to emphasize that whether true or not, that they were they were they were diverse or they're trying to mean more be more diverse and i think that at least at that level the parties want to bolster their party brands by being able to claim that they broadly represent america and so in a way we're kind of like examining whether that whether they actually like that that rhetoric that that both parties try to speak to whether their actions actually match the rhetoric in in a lot of ways i think on the one hand parties do have an incentive to discriminate against women or minorities because they may feel that they're not as strong of candidates or they may or, or there may be sort of like a legacy of discrimination there that we're, you know that, that we're not picking up and but on the other hand there is this sort of like tendency well we want to we want to bolster our ranks and I, I uh, we want to bolster our ranks with with a more diverse array of candidates in order to make ourselves look good to, to bolster our brand and those two things very very well may be canceling each other out and that that could be why we've observed the results we do. I want to talk a little bit about kind of like the the speaking to our results and kind of the interpretation of the results, because I really think that that you could interpret the results of the findings in two ways. On the one hand, you know, we we do find that the parties don't discriminate and and I think that there was a time in the not too distant past where I wouldn't be surprised if the parties were, would have gone out of their way to exclude minority candidates. You know, I, I know I'm from Chicago and in a lot of the ways, the Chicago machine was built to exclude African-Americans for representation. I don't think that that's, a, that's controversial or a secret. So on the one hand, you could sort of like interpret these results as sort of like progress and, and a positive result. But on the other hand, these results also show that the parties themselves aren't going aren't to go out of their way to help these groups either. And despite sort of big talk on both sides about increasing diversity, we're not really seeing parties go out of their way to kind of give, give these types of candidates the resources that they need to, to win competitive campaigns. Minorities are still underrepresented as candidates, but there are women and minorities in each party. The most common candidate for political office in America is 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 a white man. That is certainly what we find in our data. That isn't that is surprising. But you know there are there were at least between the elections that we looked at, which is 2010 to 2014, there were a significant number of minorities who ran uh, under both parties. So it wasn't just all on the Democratic side. Although the Democrats did have more Black, Latino, Asian, and women candidates running, that a, a significant number in both parties are uh, are people of color as well. I would say that the main determinant for for running, at least with with regards to minorities, is sort of like 
like how many co-ethnics there are in the district when they're seeking off. So, so in my in, in other research and in what we looked at, I think that that's sort of like the determinant factor in terms of like whether they actually seek office to begin with. I think like white candidates, there are a mix of competitive and long shot candidates among white and non-white male and non uh, and women candidates. But I also think that I think Democrats tend to have more competitive candidates. And this is probably due to a couple of things that there are probably more Democratic office holders who are minorities or women at the state level, and they're more likely to want to seek promotion as opposed to Republicans. So there's sort of this pipeline thing coming up. So you probably have less competitive candidates in the Republican, in the Republican Party. Vesovinich says parties don't force minorities into minority districts. Racial minority candidates instead self-select. So I think that there are a couple of things going on there. I think part of it is a supply issue where we, we mostly look at, at the congressional level, which is kind of like the top level, you know, the top level of American politics. And oftentimes candidates move their way up through, uh, up through the state level from the local level to the state level. And could be like a lot of these minorities start from kind of my, like kind of minority heavy areas. And they and that's sort of where they seek office. Right. So like so. So that's where the pool of candidates exists for them to actually try to seek promotion. So I think that that's one part of it. I, I think that part of it is also kind of a psychological part as well, in the sense that maybe candidates, they, they don't feel like they could win in 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 more white districts or they, they don't feel like they can get the support, whether and our results are so show that like parties really don't don't seem to care about those things. But even if that there's that perception out there that could deter a lot of candidates from seeking office. They do find that Democrats prize representation by white women. White women get twice as many party donors as white men. The results are really very dramatic for white women and Democrats. And I say white women specifically because really that is the that is the our, our findings are the most significant or, or only significant for white women. And to put it into con- context a bit, the numbers of donors who donated to women candidates, uh, white women candidates in the DCCC, which is our measure of party support, is over double that of white men. It's really a remarkable, remarkable result. And I think that you know, so there are kind of two things that could be happening here. And I think that one of the things is that there could be kind of like a demand among among voters, primary voters for this kind of candidate. I think that w- w- what we see here is a result that is driven by kind of an increased influence in these sort of representation focused policy groups within the Democratic Party. So so groups like Emily's List, for, for instance, and and these groups have become kind of they, they've, they've been a part of the Democratic Party apparatus or kind of this sort of network, as it were, uh, for a while. But really, we've seen them become a lot stronger in in the more in more recent times. They've really exerted a lot more influence over all these things that we talk about, kind of like, you know, like connecting candidates to donor networks. And, and their specific demand is sort of more descriptive representation of women in legislatures, in, in, in the Congress. And they've been really effective at doing that. And so like, so I think that this really, our results really speak to how well the, that these sorts of groups have done for, uh, for women candidates in the Democratic Party. On the other hand, at least our results with the elections we looked at, this support isn't going to women of color as well, which is sort of an interesting result. So they really are really like more support for white women than women of color. And so that's sort of a curious result that we'd like to dig into some more about why we're sort of seeing that. Group organizing may be the key to women's representation among Democrats. The influence of groups like Emily List shows how important 
the integration within the party of these sorts of groups is key to achieving descriptive representation goals. Like given kind of like a, the importance of party support in being successful in the primary, especially at the sort of like more a more micro level, I think that that one of the one of the key implications of our findings, I think, is that in order for minority groups to really uh, achieve what women have achieved in their party, there needs to be more empowering of these representation-focused groups within the parties, and not just the Democratic Party, but in but Republicans are consistently dealing with this issue as well. That their party, that the Republican Party, has become has become a, a largely a party of of white men, and if they want to diversify, then they're going to need to kind of like then then the empowerment of these groups is key to that diversification. I they also find that party support helps candidates win the primary, regardless of their demographics. So we look at outcomes and party support, and and basically what we find is that party support kind of doesn't 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 matter more for minority women candidates when it comes to actually winning than than other candidates. And what that means is basically that that party support kind of works the same across a different array of candidates. So that so that if you get party support as a black as a black candidate, this, it, it has the same effect as getting party support as a white candidate or a Latino candidate, for instance. And so and what that really means is that the, that party support isn't any more beneficial towards certain groups than others. It's just sort of equally beneficial it's the same. It provides the same benefits across a different array of candidates. Vasalvinich says the findings might apply to the presidential level, but there are different dynamics. Obviously, we look at a, a different level of politics than the presidential level, and I wouldn't be surprised if, if sort of the past in Hillary, Hillary Clinton faltering in 2016 wasn't a major consideration among some Democratic Party elites. But on the other hand, I think that there is a large segment of the party that is increasingly influential and that is willing to pay the elect- whatever electoral price they need to pay to get women candidates in, into office and women's representation. I'm not sure how this is going to play out the, at the presidential level, to be quite honest. And I think that there, you know, that that there are sort of different different dynamics going on here at the at the presidential level and at the at the congressional level. So in a way, at the presidential level, it's much more it's it's a much bigger deal to voters and and party elites, right? Because it's it's the biggest office, and so. It may matter. The sort of those sorts of perceptions may matter more than at the congressional level, where it's more like where it's more micro. And it's, it, I think that there may be there may be less of an attitude that we need to get this one right, as opposed to we 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 need to really make a concerted effort to increase the degree of our diversity within our we, we, you know within within Congress and within within our candidate pool. And the other difference that I I, I could see there being is that I think that parties may have an easier time exerting their influence in certain ways at the congressional level. Obviously, you know, there's a big liter- there's a big line of research about the party that decides at the presidential level. So I want to kind of like be clear that not, I'm not, not saying that parties don't exert any influence at the presidential level, but I, I can sort of see an interpretation of, of a lot of the research here is that Party party resources may be influ- more influential at the at the congressional level, and you know they may be more better at clearing the field, as it were. So those sorts of things may matter more at that level. But Maskett and Paviel find that one frame around identity politics in 2016 might be affecting how the party decides in 2020. There's at least some evidence that this identity politics framework was a pretty common narrative. I don't know enough to say yet whether it was the dominant narrative, but if you 
look at uh, media coverage and you know the, the, a lot of the punditry right after that election, this concept of identity politics comes up a lot. And it's, it's not just folks like Mark Lilla or Francis Fukuyama. It's, it's a lot of just kind of you know, mainstream political reporters and pundits in, in, a, in a lot of different venues saying things like, well, you know, it's, it's because she, you know, she didn't communicate properly to uh, the white working class. You can see different versions of this argument. A lot of people have argued, you know, you can see arguments that, well, Hillary Clinton lost because she didn't go to Wisconsin. And in some ways, that is a claim about the campaign that's saying, okay, well, you know, she didn't run her campaign effectively. She should have known where the where the competitive states were, and she should have made more of an effort to to reach out there. But that's also in some ways an identity politics critique. That is, it's saying there were working class whites in that state, and they and that state flipped to Trump because the Democrats and Hillary Clinton specifically weren't reaching out to their concerns and, and weren't campaigning there. There were a lot of ways for voters to encounter this narrative about why Clinton lost. In many ways, voters learn about this the way, you know the way they learn about uh, all sorts of narratives in in politics is that you know there's uh, they might read an article or read an op ed they might see some coverage on the news or a friend of theirs will have posted something on social media that they'll read. There was no shortage of uh, punditry out there, particularly in the you know the week or so after the 2016 election, um, to be exposed to. But I I think. The, the post-2016 election environment was particularly ripe for that sort of thing, just given that the presidential election had such a, a surprising and controversial result. It was, you know, just given where polls were, a lot of people were very surprised to see Donald Trump win. A lot of Democratic voters were rather shocked. They were rather despondent and probably paid more attention to the political news in the, in the immediate wake of the election than they would after after a more typical election, simply because they were looking for some sort of explanation. They were looking for some sort of story. Their experiment found that the frame mattered most among women, perhaps because men had already heard it. Figured there'd be some differences across genders, but we didn't really expect to see pretty much the entire effect concentrated among women. Yet in some ways that makes sense. It's the this version of this identity politics narrative you know that that Hillary Clinton didn't reach out to the concerns of of white men is confirms what a lot of white men already felt that uh, you know the campaign is going to have problems when it focuses on someone else, and so you know they th this this confirmed a lot of what they've been hearing um, you know so th there there wasn't really a whole lot of movement there. Why did it affect women in many ways? And, and we have you know we've investigated you know a fair amount of the literature on different socialization of men and women. I, I, there's whole areas of other literature we could be getting into here and probably need to dig into even more. But there's considerable evidence that women are generally socialized in the United States to be consensual, to seek consensus in their social groups, and men are socialized to be more individualistic. And so if women are, you know, continue to receive this message that the party would have won if not for this candidate who was advocating for women, in, in some ways, kind of the first interpretation of that is, oh, it's our fault. We, you know, we, we wanted too much. We should try and scale back our needs uh, on behalf of the group. And so that identity politics argument is in many ways, like really pernicious in this way. And so it, it taps into an area where 
women voters are really already very sensitive. You know, this this concern that they're in some ways asking too much by having a, a female candidate who's focused on gender inequality. And it produced big moves among women. They became less likely to support women candidates and less likely to support discrimination-focused messages. We use what's called a conjoint study, which is a way of dividing up if you have a lot of different variables. In this case, we wanted to know uh, how people felt about generic candidates who were either a man or a woman, who were either white or a person of color, or who were you know, advocating for a general economic message versus an anti-discrimination message and so forth. Uh, the conjoint study allows you to have like several variables going at once. Just, so just asking people a series of matchup questions. Would you prefer a candidate who is a man, a person of color who advocates for a general economic message versus a woman who's a person of color who advocates for a generalist message? And you can change all those variables one by one. So everyone in the study gets to see like 10 different questions that are, and we just sort of, you know, see which they prefer. You compile those all together and you get a sense of actually how they rank these things. And what we generally find here is that overall, and, and again, we, we were concentrating here on white Democrats. We found that white Democratic women generally preferred a female candidate when we asked them who, who they liked, but we show them this identity politics narrative and they move about five to six points more toward the male candidate. They generally preferred a, you know, given a choice between a candidate with a focus on the economy uh, rather than a focus on, on correcting uh, discrimination in the workplace, but it showed them the identity politics narrative and they move uh, toward the economic message by about 10 points. So th these were fairly large effects and those could be enough to affect which candidates they're considering or uh, what policies they want those candidates to address once in office. And again, we found very small to negligible effects for men in the study. Maskett sees some signs this dynamic is mattering in the 2020 presidential race. It's extrapolating from one study we did of, of less than a thousand people. And, you know, we, we can't know for certain, but um, just looking at the field so far, it's interesting. There's a number of obviously very high quality candidates who are women and who are doing fairly well. I mean, you know, Elizabeth Warren is, is in reasonable shape here. Uh, Kamala Harris is doing not poorly. But, you know, a, a you know, just digging down into some of the polls, a fair amount of the support for Joe Biden is his perceived electability, right? And the perception of electability is informed a lot by the lessons of 2016 that people are drawing. There's, you know, certainly a, a fair number of people who are under the impression that Hillary Clinton lost because she was a woman, because of this message she had, and that Joe Biden, by being um, a white man with some ties, you know, some, some working class background and some ties to the Midwestern region, has a better ability to win. And that's not necessarily empirically demonstrated in any way, but that is a perception that people had drawn in some ways by these identity politics arguments. It might even explain why there's not yet much divide in men's and women's choices. If this identity politics narrative that we were investigating has been taking hold, we would expect, you know, as in our, as we found in the study, that the identity politics narrative in some ways encourages female Democrats to behave more like male Democrats. That is, they might have 
had more of an interest in backing a woman. They might have had more of an interest in backing a a more liberal candidate with more of an agenda toward uh, addressing discrimination. But because of this longstanding concern that their identity concerns cost Democrats the White House in 2016, they are in in many ways their preferences are are shifting, or you know at least the revealed preferences are shifting more toward what men were already thinking within the party. And so you, you don't see as many differences across gender lines as, as you might have otherwise. So it's possible had that view, that identity politics narrative never really taken hold, we might be seeing more gender splits within the party right now. We might be seeing more women coming out in support for Warren or Harris or, or Klobuchar or someone like that. Vesovinich agrees that presidential voters may feel differently than parties in Congress. I think that there may be kind of a psychological effect of losing, <laughs> which could be kind of like a big, a big motivator. And this might be happening at the voter level. I know I read a recently read a New York Times article about why so many African-Americans are supporting, you know, who voted, who very happily voted for Obama and were big supporters of, of Obama in 08. Why are they supporting Joe Biden? And a lot of them are sort of like, well, we we lost and we just want to win. And we just think that a white man is the kind of person who people want to elect. And I think that 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 at the very least that these dynamics, you know, are, are, are super interesting and need to be like, are deserve a lot more exploration to sort of psychological effect of losing. It is at odds with kind of like what our paper finds, which is that like a lot of the donor class at the very least seem to be pretty motivated to, for more representation kind of spurred on by these, these very influential interest groups in the party. And it'd be interesting to see whether this sort of holds in, into the, into 2020 where Trump's going to be on the ballot and, you know, it may different, dynamics may take hold, and you know, that's definitely going to be interesting to look at. Traditionally, Maskett says, party chairs feared women and minority candidates, but now that might be changing. We may be talking about two very different things here. There is some research by, I think, Michael Miller and others finding that, you know, surveys of local party chairs, Democratic party chairs, finding that they're generally uncomfortable nominating a woman or nominating a, a person of color thinking that white men are more electable. And, you know, this, I think some other research by Kira Sanbonmatsu found something similar to that a few years back. It may be that that's shifting, particularly in the wake of 2016, uh, as you have, you know, sort of a, a new uh, activism by a lot of women in the party. A lot more women are running for office now. And, you know, it may certainly be that within the 2018 context, Female candidates were seen as having an advantage, and this was seen as a place that was very important to a lot of Democratic activists. And uh, so that may be a relatively new thing within the party. So I, I don't know really that the party is unified in this. I mean, I'm, I'm speaking somewhat in generalities here, but, you know, it's, it may simply be that as some parts of the party, some, you know, some activists, some voters are feeling very passionate about nominating women, nominating people of color for high office. There may be others in the party, some voters, some party leaders, uh, some people with much more history in the party who are still wary of it and who drew a lesson, an identity politics lesson from 2016 that was similar to lessons the party drew in previous contests. 2018 saw a big upsurge in representation in Congress, different from the presidential race. An activist base of women that has cropped up since since Trump's election, and particularly since the his 2017 inauguration, when you had just you know the record turnout in political protests in that in January 2017, 
on specifically a message about women, there are just a lot more female candidates. There's a lot more women activists now on the Democratic side. And, you know, and just looking at representation wise in both in Congress and in state legislatures, you have record numbers of women in Congress and in many state legislatures right now, but almost entirely on the Democratic side. In many places, the number of female Republican elected officials has actually shrunk somewhat in recent years. So this is, you know, women's uh, political activism has become increasingly a party story. And I feel like Democratic elites, you know, not only are many of them women now, but many of them are sort of recognizing this as, as a very important and very vibrant vein to be tapping into and realizing that there are there are political risks to ignoring this aspect of representation and activism. Misovinich also sees gender dynamics changing. The Republican Party may have long odds to generating women and minority candidates in the Trump era. Even if the party is trying, and which they aren't, which they aren't really proactively trying to promote, to promote or nor are they denying resources for, to, to these to minority women candidates. But, but I think that the Republican Party has like a major brand problem with regards to uh, how how people see the party as whether they're receptive to to candidates who are minority and women. And I think part of it is sort of policy. Part of it is sort of uh, kind of like this, the, the president himself. And so like kind of like President Trump and his and his, you know, his relationship with these different groups has has not been good to be to say the least and and maybe this sort of shows this like it'd be interesting to see in in kind of in the era of trump how this all plays out but maybe this sort of shows that that even if even with the party being kind of like at least outwardly uh, agnostic in its in the way that it spreads its support around different candidates that you, if you can't get people to run under as Republicans, it doesn't really matter, does it? Right? Like if you can't get minorities and women to run as Republicans, it's going to be it's pretty hard. And I wouldn't be surprised if in the Trump era we sort of saw that like the Republican Party become at least seeming to be a, a lot more hostile of a place for those kind of candidates than, than before. He says even though they didn't find discrimination by either party, there still might be minority disadvantages at other stages of the process. We examine just one part of the electoral process, which is the primary, and that it's entirely possible that discrimination can happen in other stages of the process, like the recruitment stage, for instance. I you know, mentioned this with regards to Republicans. If you can't, if people don't want to run under your banner, if they, and that they could be for a number of reasons, that they, they either feel like your party brand is hostile to, to their kind of subgroup, or they feel like the party apparatus itself isn't very favorable to them, rightly or wrongly, they're not going to run. And so those sort of discriminate, like the kind of discrimination that you may, that, that we don't observe here, you we may be observing, we may, we might observe in other contexts is what I would say. And the other point I'd like to make is that this paper kind of exclusively looks at candidates who've made it to a certain point in the process. And so it could be that the quality of minority women candidates who do make it to this stage, who make it to a stage where they're running and they're raising money, is different from the quality of white candidates. And that this quality isn't, isn't something that's picked up in our control variable on, uh, on candidate quality, which is whether they held prior office. Vesalvinich says lots of things still need to be done to increase representation by proactive parties. Our results don't explain the representation gap, but they do potentially point to a way to kind of help close the gap. Now, and to be clear, I'm not saying that our that parties need to do everything. There's obviously a lot of factors involved in the an underrepresentation in America, including 
pipeline issues, whether people feel like the party, whether these underrepresented groups feel like the parties are welcoming, whether they think they can win, you know, whether they actually can't have a, a means to move up through the political, you know, from the local level to the national level. And these, there's only, there's only certain, like as so much that parties can do, but I truly believe that one of the, that parties can be more proactive and in a way have to be more proactive in diversifying their ranks. And whether this be through the empowerment of different groups or whether this be kind of from like a top, a top level decision, you know, at, at the, uh, at the committee level, I think that like, I think that it's a key part of the equation. And I think that one of the things that these results sort of show is that, is that parties, you know, they themselves probably are agnostic and they're not, they're not motivated. And so they kind of need to be pushed to be motivated about these sorts of things. And I think that like, you, you can sort of see with, with these results that these results happen, you know, we looked at these results in 20, 2010 to 2014. And we really are like, in a way you can sort of see that like, that this culture of promoting women in the Democratic Party has really borne out in the election subsequent, you know, like that we sort of seen recently that we saw way more women be brought into Congress. And that I think that these results reflect that desire among Democratic Party donors and elites that we they want more women in Congress. And I think that like, if we want to see more diversity in our political institutions, parties are going to be a big part of that equation. Maskett says the party's interpretation of elections, currently hurting women candidates, might not last as party elites see how voters are changing. There was a, a Democratic campaign activist I spoke to in New Hampshire, this woman who's worked on a lot of presidential campaigns in the past. She worked for Hillary Clinton both in the 07-08 cycle and in the 15-16 cycle. Long-standing, lifelong feminist. I had asked her in 2017 why she, uh, Hillary Clinton lost, and she said she was concerned it was gender. She's, she said, I'm concerned that we need to nominate a white man next time around. That's the only sort of candidate who can stand up to Trump. And she said, you know, I'm worried I'm going to get kicked out of the, of the women's club because of that. And I followed up with her a few months ago about that. I'm saying, you know, you know, right after the election, you said the following. And she said, oh, yeah, I remember what I said. I don't agree with that anymore. Just watching what happened in the 2018 cycle where a lot of very strong women, a lot of people of color won. I don't think that's actually true. She isn't committed to a candidate yet, but she has not eliminated women or people of color for that for that role. Um, so it is interesting to me how these these narratives, they do affect the way people think about politics, but they're also not necessarily permanent. People can reevaluate as things go forward. There are lots of views of 2016, after all, and it's hard to determine which, if any, makes sense. This election had so many different possible frames. This is one thing I talk about when I'm, when I'm interviewing political activists for, for the study I'm doing. First question I always ask is, why do you think Hillary Clinton lost in 2016? And that's at least, you know, that's often like an hour-long response to that. I mean, people have a lot of views on that, and that, that's a whole wonderful conversation and I've gotten a, a really wide range of interesting answers that have come out for this. Some people talk about identity politics. Some people talk about campaign deficiencies or candidate differences. Some people will talk about Jim Comey or Russian influence. Uh, some people will say it was about Sanders supporters or it was about Jill Stein. It was a close enough election that almost any of these answers are potentially right or potentially wrong. You know, it's, it's also close enough that you just sort of take the political science approach that it's very rare for a party to hold on to the White House for three consecutive terms. 
you had middling growth in the economy, you know, that's that's a situation that's probably going to be a 50-50 election. And so maybe we shouldn't worry so much about what the candidates and campaigns and parties were doing and just say, well, this was always going to be a toss up and it ended up with something like that. Next up for Vasovanich is to see if anything is changing under Trump. Parties are constantly changing. And, you know, as, as I mentioned before, there has been this dialogue in the GOP very recently, especially after the 2018 election that, you know, like, well, we have this major problem, especially with the gender gap, and we need to diversify our slate of candidates. And, and they seem to have this sort of conversation with themselves over and over every, every time they have a bad election, basically, is what, you know, so in 2012, they kind of had the same thing. And so it'll be interesting to see what, whether, you know, how how parties really have changed in the in the in the era of Trump, and so once we have the once we have the data together, we we're, we're going to want to see whether the relationship between, for instance, Democratic the Democratic Party donor networks, whether they bec- they become more receptive to women of color, whether they sort of stay the same, or uh, whether Republicans actually are you know uh, trying to reach out to minorities, or whether they've totally given up in the era of Trump, and so like and so I think that. That one one key thing to note is that because parties are constantly changing, we shouldn't expect expect these results to sort of stay the same. We actually should expect the results to to change. Maskett will also be following up on the primary and then the general election. One of the things I'm hoping to do is we might ask some, you know, do some follow up surveys on this and possibly do a follow up study right after the next election. You know, one of the problems with the study as we have it is that it occurred well after the the 2016 election. We might want to be able to do some sort of a study before post-election narratives take hold. So that would that would be kind of interesting. I'd like to see us if we could ask more explicitly questions about electability and what makes people decide one candidate is more electable than the other. And you know, generally for my book project, I'm you know I'm going to be continuing these interviews and then sort of seeing how people respond to the debates and uh, how people respond as the campaign heats up, things get a little more negative and we start to move into uh, the voting early next year. There's a lot more to learn. The Science of Politics is available bi-weekly from the Niskanen Center. I'm your host, Matt Grossman. Thanks to Neil Vasovanich and Seth Maskett for joining me. Please check out the party's primary preferences and you had better mention all of them and then listen in next time. <laughs>